invite you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11. The king knew that the threat was real this time. It was the threat of attack, and it had been more serious than ever. But the king was not going to give in. Instead, he adds another hundred soldiers to protect his palace. He was not going to allow the enemy to come in and take his son. The fact that someone would try to defy the greatest king at the world in that time was preposterous. And so the king was filled with anger. The attack was supposed to happen at midnight, and so his anger quickly morphed into anxiety. He kissed his son goodnight and sent him to bed, but he couldn't sleep, the king. So he tried to sneak into his son's room to see how he was doing. The boy wakes up and says, Is that you, Dad? Yeah, that's me. Go back to sleep. I'll see you at breakfast. But how could the king be sure that he would see his son at breakfast? In a few minutes, the boy would go back to sleep while the king would sit in his room and wait. And throughout the night, he would get updates from his chief of staff that all was clear outside. The king waits a little longer, and as he waits, he noticed that his son... The chest of his son is no longer moving. The king reaches to wake him up, but his son doesn't respond. What happened? How could this happen? Why would this happen to the great king? How could this have been avoided? Who is responsible for his son's death? It must have been a long night for the king of Egypt and his wife. The The sounds of loud wailing like have never been heard in the history of Egypt. The palace wasn't the only place that experienced death. It was every single home in Egypt felt the pain of loss. And God was behind it all. God was behind it all in order to show His great power and to release Israel from Pharaoh's grip. And that's what Exodus chapter 11 is about. Let's look at this chapter together. I'll read beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. But against any one of the sons of Israel, a dog will not not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. 
And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. God exalts Himself through the judgment of the wicked. God exalts Himself through the judgment of the wicked. In verses 1-3, to we see that God instructs Moses about this final plague. And before we get into the text itself, sometimes I need to explain something about chronology. Sometimes when we read text, we think this happens chronologically after the one before it. So if we think in paragraphs, this paragraph, verses 1-3, to happens chronologically after chapter 10. And so sometimes we read that way, uh, uh, we, we, we think that way. But we need to keep in mind that Moses and many of the biblical authors tell a story like many authors tell stories today, and like you tell stories as well, that we add in parenthetical statements that actually happened at a previous time. And so here, I think what's happening, happening in verses 1 through 3, we have a parenthetical statement. That is something that happened before the events of chapter 10, verse 24. And uh, we'll get to that here in just a second. But, but basically what Moses is doing, this is the same conversation. He's standing before Pharaoh and the same conversation that he's having at the conclusion of the darkness plague is the same conversation he's having at the beginning of the, the death plague. And so it's basically just a continuation of it. We'll look at that here in just a second. And the reason that I think that is because this first phrase here in verse 1, now the Lord said to Moses, could also be translated, now the Lord had said to Moses. If you have a New International Version, you have that reading. And I think the in indication there is that the Lord had said this earlier, and so Moses and Pharaoh continue their conversation from chapter 10, verse 29, to chapter 11, verse 4. So, now, when I make a statement like that, that, that authors often put things out of order in order to make a point, don't think, okay, so now we don't know what order all the plagues are in. We're going to just have to guess. That's not the point that I'm making. But I'm saying in this specific case, because there is this idea that the Lord had said, I, I believe that, that um, it makes the most sense of this whole narrative. And hopefully you'll see that as we go through. Alright, so in verses 1-3, to three, God reveals to Moses this new information and He gives him a promise. The new inf information is found in verse 1. One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and Egypt. Up until this point where God speaks to Moses, Moses had no idea when these plagues were going to end. He knew that Pharaoh would eventually let them go, but he didn't know how many plagues it was going to take. So there's the new information. The promise that God gives is in the second part of verse 1. When He lets you go, He will surely drive you out from here completely. In other words, you know how Pharaoh's been reluctant up until this point to let you go? He won't be reluctant. No, instead, He's actually going to force you out. He's going to ask. He's going to demand that you leave. And, of course, we know the rest of the story and that's exactly what happens. Pharaoh finally gives in to God's demand to let God's people go, let Israel go. And this is a huge concession on the part of Pharaoh. We looked at this last week, but the first concession that Pharaoh gave was, okay, if you want to worship your God, then why don't you do it within the land of Egypt? 
Moses says, no, that's not good enough in chapter 8, verse 29. And then the second concession that Pharaoh makes after more plagues come on him, the second concession is, all right, fine, if you want to worship your God in the wilderness, go, but only take the men. That's in chapter 10, verses 10 and 11. The third concession that he makes is, all right, everyone can go, but you have to leave the livestock here. All your animals stay with us, which would require the people of Israel to come back. That was in chapter 10, verse 24. But here, God is saying, this will be a full surrender. This is Pharaoh's final concession after the plague of death. He is going to fully surrender to God's demand, which is to let all of them go along with their cattle, along with all their livestock so that they can go worship Him. And we also see that not only will He let them go, but He will force them to go. And He will give them valuables to take along with them. This is amazing because uh, this is what God had promised to Abraham in Genesis 15, 13, and 14. He says, Your descendants, Abraham, will be enslaved for 400 years. But I will judge that nation and send Israel out with many possessions. So he had promised to Abraham, and, and if Israel had, had, had thought about that or had been meditating on that, they would recognize that this was a promise that God was making to them, that he was going to send them out with many possessions, not just their own possessions, but actually Egypt's possessions. They would plunder the Egyptians simply by asking them. And God had also promised this to Moses in chapter 3, verse 21 of Exodus. You will not go away from here empty-handed, he says. And the reasons that they will leave in this way is that the Lord will make them favorably disposed to the Egyptians. Look at verse 3. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So following the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians, the Egyptians are favorably disposed to Israel. They have some kind of respect for them because of what their God can do. But not only that, Moses is also favored among the people. Look at verse uh, the end of verse 3. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt. It doesn't seem like this takes place after the death plague, but actually throughout these plagues, they start to see that Moses actually is a messenger of God. And his words carry some weight. Moses, Remember, Moses is the author of Exodus. And I don't think he's being proud here. I think he's simply showing that they would readily give up their valuables so quickly and easily because they respected the people of Israel, they highly favored them, and they respected Moses. And uh, so, so really, God was behind all of this. The people had recognized the, the crazy responses that Pharaoh was making to Moses' demands. That Pharaoh should have seen that these plagues were from God because the people certainly did. So, verses 11 to 3 are probably, in, in my estimation, a flashback to the time when the land was dark. While the land was dark, Moses and God had a conversation. And, and that's during the time in which Pharaoh was trying to figure out his next move. turns out that Pharaoh comes and, and, and calls for Moses in verse 24. And he says, finally, go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and herds that's chapter 10, verse 24. Only let your flocks and your herds be detained. Even your little ones may go with you. Okay, so then Moses responds and, and 
we find out the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, verse 27, and then verse 28. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Beware, do not see my face again, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, You're right, I shall never see your face again. But then I think this conversation continues, and it continues in chapter 11, verse 4. Moses said, Thus says the Lord. So, you're right, I'm not going to see your face again. Here's what God has said about you. So before the ninth plague had finished, during the time of darkness, God comes to visit Moses and He tells them that that, um, this final plague is going to come upon him. So here, Moses warns Pharaoh in verses 4-8. through Pharaoh has an opportunity to avoid this devastating plague, this devastating final plague. The nature of the plague is found in verse 5. It is that all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. As for any culture in the ancient Near East, the Egyptians put a lot of stock in their firstborn son. He enjoyed a double inheritance. A double inheritance. So if there were two sons, normally we would think that you would take the inheritance and give half to one son and half to the other. But in the ancient Near East, the way that the the Jews would do it, the way that the Egyptians would do it, is that they would give a double portion to the oldest son. So if there were two sons, for example... You'd give two portions to the oldest son and one to the youngest son. So instead of one half for the oldest son, he would get two-thirds of the inheritance. And he would also be the one who would be next in line to become king of Egypt. And so particularly this was significant for Pharaoh's son. He He would be next in line to take the throne. The firstborn was very important and God was taking them from the Egyptians. The scope of the plague is found at the end of verse 5. It's not just that it's going to come on Pharaoh's house or just on a few people, but it's going to come from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones. It is all the firstborn in Egypt are going to die. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're the king or a slave girl. All the firstborn sons were going to die. And it seems to me that even the firstborn daughters would die as well if a family didn't have a son. So turn to chapter 12, verse 30, and I'll show you why I think that. Chapter 12, verse 30. So if a family had, if a couple had, say, four daughters or something and no sons, then it seems like the first, the, the, the oldest daughter would die. Uh, verse 30, this is after the plague has happened. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. So it seems to me that implied in that is that the firstborn daughter also would be uh, taken in a family that, that didn't have any sons. The agent of the plague, turn back to chapter 11, the agent of the plague is found in verse 4. Moses said, Thus says the Lord about midnight, I am going out into the midst of Egypt. He says, I am going out. Now this is noteworthy because God has not been the direct agent of these disasters that have come upon Egypt. The death and the sickness that have occurred have happened through some kind of means, either through some animals or through some pestilence. Or through Moses, maybe all of them we could say Moses raising his staff, right? So those were the means. But on this one, Moses has nothing to do with the actual death 
coming upon the firstborn of the Egyptians. God saying, I'm coming Myself and I'm going to do this. He says, I am going out into the midst of Egypt. And in chapter, in chapter 12, when we get there, we're going to find out when this plague is taking place that there is no sickness that He causes. There's no catastrophe, pestilence that brings about this death. It is God, the Destroyer, who comes and takes away their life. The timing of the plague is found at the first part of verse 4, about midnight, it reads there. The timing at midnight. There's several good reasons why God might choose midnight, and we don't know for sure because the text doesn't tell us. One, though, I think is that Pharaoh would know that that this death was not a, an accident. right? Just like the other plagues, when God did it at certain times, it helped Pharaoh and the people of Israel or people of Egypt know that this wasn't an accident. It wasn't just something that naturally occurred, but rather at the stroke of midnight uh, that, that this plague would affect each of these firstborn. second reason I think God might have chosen midnight is that it would give Pharaoh time to think about what he was doing. He clearly rejects God even though he's warned that at midnight your child is going to die. Your firstborn is going to die. And though he has the warning, he doesn't respond. So he has time to think about his rejection of God. And the third reason that God might do this is, I think, an act of mercy that these children would die in their sleep. And uh, again, I can't be dogmatic about any of those reasons, but, but those are some possibilities. The exclusivity of the plague is seen in verse 7. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast. The exclusivity of the plague. Now, what, what does this mean, that not even a dog will bark? Well, literally, from the Hebrew, it, it could read, not a dog will sharpen its tongue against a man or animal. Dogs were not uh, domesticated like they are for us. Dogs were seen as very menial uh, creatures in society, similar to how we might think of rats today. They, um, and, and so this idiom is probably something like, rather than not a dog will bark, but that a dog won't cause any harm to any person or animal in, the, in Israel. So they're not going to ca- cause any harm to them. That's how clear the distinction is going to be between what God does for Egypt and what God does for Israel. Not even a dog will will make a noise or, or, or will go after, harm any anyone in Israel or Egypt. And the purpose, look at the second part of verse 7, so that you may understand how the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Here's Moses saying to Pharaoh, you need to understand something very important. God's making a distinction between you and us. That there is a difference between how He treats us and how He treats you. And that's because He is the true and living God. And He has a special purpose for us as His people. The result of the plague is found in verse 8. All these your servants will come down to Me and bow down. And they will bow before Me saying, Go out, you and all your people who follow you. And after that I will go out. The result of the plague is, is that, that they will demand that Moses and Israel leave. Just as Moses in chapter 10, verses 24-29 to is saying, get out of my presence. 
I don't want to see you again. Moses is saying that's exactly what's going to happen after this plague occurs. All of your people, including you and your servants, are going to say to us, get out of this land. Don't come back. We want nothing to do with you. And it says there in verse 8 that they will even bow themselves down before Moses. Apparently in, in opposition towards Pharaoh, showing that, that, that Moses' God is the true God. Not that they've turned in saving faith or anything, but, but, but recognizing that Moses serves a God that is much bigger than Pharaoh. Not only would Egypt let them go, but they would demand it and they would send them on their way with great parting gifts. The old Wheel of Fortune used to, I think, you have to choose your parting gifts. Uh, or maybe that was a different show. But, but I always wondered what that was. So that was party gifts. But I think it's like going away gifts. All right. Well, <clears throat> see, when you don't put stuff in your notes, it gets bad. So, All right. Pharaoh responds in verses 8 to 10. Verses 8 to 10, Pharaoh's, uh, Moses leaves the presence of Pharaoh in hot anger. And then, verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. God, again, predicts, prophesies that Pharaoh's not going to listen. He's not going to listen again. And the reason that he's not going to listen, Moses, the reason that he's been defiant, why he will be defiant in this great plague, is so that, look at the end of verse 9, my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. This actually helps my case, God says. That people will see me for who I am. As they see Pharaoh obstinate against me, they'll see my great works and respond rightly. They'll respond like I want them to respond, which is to recognize the distinction that I'm making between them and Israel. So this is probably not just a hardening that's taken place just in this last plague. It probably includes all of these wonders that Pharaoh has seen, probably a summary of all these plagues that God had planned that Pharaoh would not withdraw his hand of power. He would not let Israel go. And, and we see again that the Lord is the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart. Despite all these clear signs, Pharaoh is still unwilling to submit, and that was because the Lord was behind it, that, that the Lord is the one who hardens Pharaoh's heart. Notice Moses' response there uh, before he leaves at the end of verse 8, and he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Perhaps Moses is thinking about all the innocent lives that are going to die because of Pharaoh's obstinance. And perhaps he's thinking of all the avoidable death that was going to take place or, or that shouldn't have taken place because of Pharaoh's callousness. And so he leaves in hot anger. Pharaoh's still unwilling to let people of Israel go. God exalts Himself through the judgment of the wicked. It's hard for us to see that when we think about God and judgment. We think of God and we, we like to think of Him as simply always affectionate, never showing any anger or wrath. Let me give you two realities about how God judges the wicked. Two realities about how God judges the wicked. Number one, God is the great humiliator of the wicked. 
God is the great humiliator of the wicked. There's a small detail in verse 5 that we might have missed. Look at the end of verse 5. Not only will all the firstborn of the, the people be killed, but all the firstborn of the cattle as well at the end of the verse. Why would God do such a thing? Turn back to chapter 10, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. All these great works that I'm performing is so that I can make a mockery of the Egyptians and so that you can be telling for generation after generation the great works that I performed. Now, if God wanted to, He could have shown these great acts of power on a much smaller stage. Like maybe a little city that was very very less well-known, very, very few people knew about it. Maybe a smaller population. God could have performed His plagues on them, couldn't He? And He could have shown His mighty works to them. But instead, God does something that is very important. He takes the most powerful and well-known nation in the world, a nation whose king they called their God. And He takes that nation and He makes that the stage on which He's going to show His great power and make a mockery of the greatest nation in the world. And so the death of the cattle is simply another way in which God humiliates the people of, the Egyptian, uh, of Egypt. And He does that so that there's no question at the end of these ten plagues who is in charge. Could Egypt ever question? Hmm, I wonder if that was another God who did that. No, Moses predicted these in many cases and, and then they happened and they stopped only when Moses prayed to his God. At the beginning, the Egyptians thought Pharaoh was God, along with all the other gods of nature that they worshipped. But by the end, they had to recognize that Israel's God is the true God and that there is none that can match His supremacy. You see, God is the great humiliator of the wicked so that He can show His great power. And He often takes the biggest stage in order to show His supremacy. We see another example of how God will humiliate the wicked the wicked proud at the end of the tribulation. The city of Babylon, which symbolizes all the power and, and greatness of the world and its system, is led by the most widely lauded king in human history. And that is the Antichrist. And he has the corner on the economic market. No one can buy or sell unless they do it with the mark of the beast. He has the corner on the political map. There's no earthly king that doesn't, uh, doesn't become his vassal, that doesn't submit themselves to him. And he also has a corner on the religious stage, doesn't he? And he requires people to worship him and the idol of himself in the temple at Jerusalem. But in Revelation 17 and 18, just as the plagues of the tribulation intensify, We read that in a short period of time, one hour, Babylon 
which was unlike any superpower in human history, has fallen. And people look on it and are surprised and devastated at how quickly they have fallen and how humiliated they are as, as a people. And who is standing there? Who is responsible for Babylon's fall? It is the one who rides in on a white horse and on his thigh is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is Jesus. Babylon and its leader, the Antichrist, are humiliated at the close of the tribulation and Satan then is bound up for 1,000 years. And then at the end of that time, Satan will be released for a short time only to be humiliated finally and fully fully defeated, never to be heard from again. God is the great humiliator of the wicked. And aren't you thankful that you're on God's side? Number two, second reality about how God deals with the wicked. The way that God humiliates the wicked is always right. The way that God humiliates the wicked is always right. Every, everyone admits that evil and wickedness abound in our world, right? And everyone admits that evil and wickedness must be dealt with, right? And we shout amen when we consider the just destiny of Satan and the Antichrist. But what about the people who are not so wicked? They're just maybe unlearned. People in South America or Africa or maybe even Royal Oak. Those people who have never heard the Gospel. Do they really need to be judged along with many of these people that we see as clearly wicked? Do they really need to be sent to an eternal hell? Wouldn't God be more loving if He kept them from such a devastating fate? So we think about these innocent people and we start to reconsider how God is handling things, don't we? Maybe God could give everyone a second chance when they get to the next life. Maybe He could ask them then. Or maybe God could just somehow let everyone into heaven. Sure, they'd have to, they'd have to pay for their sin in some way, for some sh- period of time, some longer than others, in a way that would fit their crime, but, but eventually they'd all make it into heaven. Maybe God's affection for people should always overcome his wrath against sin. And if we think about the story here in Exodus 11, we have to feel for the innocent firstborns. And how could God do such a thing? Why not just kill Pharaoh? Why not kill his officials who were clearly defiant against Moses and Moses' God? They were the ones who deserved judgment, right? Why the children? What do we make of the innocent people who have never heard the gospel? How do we think about these children in Exodus 11 who were killed for someone else's failure? In order to defend God's goodness, I I want to make a few observations. First, Pharaoh was not the only innocent party. We might think, well, let's just kill the leader. But Pharaoh was not the only innocent party. Those who wanted to submit to God could have resisted Pharaoh like they apparently do here at the end. They bow down before Moses and say, get out of here. They could have done that much earlier. So they are culpable for their own rejection of God because they are following a wicked leader instead of following the righteous judge. Second observation is don't forget the purpose of the plagues. 
If we want to understand properly how God deals with the wicked and that how He deals with the wicked is always right, we need to understand the purpose of the plagues. And what was it? It was to show Israel and Egypt and all people really, as we read about it, many generations removed, that God alone is the Lord. And that the gods of the nations are idols. That the gods of the Egyptians that they served were no match for the true and living God. So we must remember the purpose of the plagues. The third observation is that apparent unfairness apparent unfairness is part of the curse. Okay? The, the, what I'm trying to say is that the way that we look at situations and we don't reconcile, we don't understand how to reconcile it, that it seems like the, the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, that's part of the curse. There are all sorts of tragedies that occur where countless innocent people die. And that's just part of living in a sin-cursed world. And that's what makes us long for the restoration of the earth and the restoration of His people to what God designed at creation. Whatever God does is right, even how He deals with the wicked. you believe that whatever God does is right? David Platt is an evangelical pastor from Texas. And in his challenge at commencement at Southeastern Seminary in 2011, he argues this, that every innocent person who has never heard the Gospel will go to heaven. Think about that for a minute. Every innocent person who has never heard the Gospel will go to heaven. But he goes on to say that the only problem is that there is no innocent person. There is no innocent person that exists who hasn't heard the Gospel. Every single person inherited the sins of their father Adam and therefore they stand condemned before the Holy God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So his point is is that yes, if there were an innocent person who hadn't heard the Gospel, they would go straight to heaven. But there's no such thing. You might be here this morning thinking, why would God ever send anyone to hell? But the question that we ought to be asking is this. Why would God save anyone at all? Why would God save any of us? There's a lot more that I could say about these innocent infants. Because obviously infants are in a different category than those who have come of age, have the ability to understand the Gospel and reject it, even if they haven't heard it. Okay, So I don't have time to unpack all that. I do believe that that infants who die do go to heaven. Okay, but, but I don't have time to, to explain all that this morning. But, but I want you to be sure that no power can overthrow God's power and that everything God does is right. In His wisdom, He has planned every single event on this planet for all time. And He carries out His goodness and His judgment in such a way to show the world that He is God. Friends, you may see God as cruel, but in many ways, when we learn His judgment and His judgment of how He carried it out in Egypt, that's actually a sign of mercy for us. Because in His judgment of Egypt, God warns us of a greater judgment that will come upon the earth. And He has promised to spare you from that judgment of His wrath if you will trust in Christ alone. 
for salvation from your sins. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that You do judge the wicked. And You do it in a way to make Your glory known. Lord, we wish we could make sense of all of the apparent unfairness that goes on in this world. That we as the righteous often suffer. And yet we see many of the wicked prospering. Lord, we ultimately can't do it in this lifetime. We, We simply know that we live for something greater and that we have promises of something much better than this life. And so we count on You being right. And we count on You being in control, just like You were in control of Pharaoh's heart. That, that You stood behind his hardened heart in a way that guaranteed that You would win. That no one could thwart Your purposes. Or we're thankful that You are not a God like the deists follow that, that you just kind of sit back and, and let everything run and, and you have nothing to do with this world, but that you are near and, and you are imminent and, and we can count on you. And the, the clear way that we have seen your imminence, your nearness, is through the sending of your Son. And now we hold in our hands a copy of His story. We hold the revelation of your, of your Son, the Word of God. And so we treasure it and we we turn to it for answers and we hold it up with great respect because it points to You, our living God. And Lord, we pray that You would help us to think rightly about our own circumstances and not to charge You with blame, but to recognize that, that You are in control and everything that You do is right. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.